Hi everyone, Drew Prode here from the Broken Brain Podcast. And on today's episode, we have my dear friend, Mark Brahenna, a dentist who's passionate about the connection between our oral health and sleep apnea. Super fascinating conversation. Stay tuned to learn more. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, and functional medicine with the goal of helping you understand how your brain is not broken. I'm your host, Drew Perode, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is a new friend of mine, Dr. Mark Berhenna. Dr. B knows that the mouth is the gateway to health in the rest of the body. He's the author of the number one bestseller, The Eight-Hour Sleep Paradox, and is a practicing sleep medicine dentist in Sunnyvale, California. Dr. B has been practicing dentistry in the greater San Francisco area for over 30 years. He's a TEDx speaker, and his advice regularly appears in media outlets like CNN, CBS, Yahoo Health, The Huffington Post, The Washington Post, and Men's Health. He received his degree from Dugoni School of Dentistry in San Francisco and is a member of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, Academy of General Dentistry, American Academy of Oral Systemic Health, and the Dental Board of California. Dr. B is passionate about helping people understand the connection between oral and overall health. He also spends a lot of time educating patients and readers about the importance of healthy sleep, which is what we're going to talk about in the, today's podcast. Dr. B, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Oh, Drew, the pleasure is all mine. This is a great show. You've done a lot of great things with this show, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, we've just recently met in person. But we've been a big fan of your work and askthedentist.com and uh, your team has been a great support to our team and vice versa and you share such great knowledge that's why i'm so excited to have you on here and go deep into a topic that we've kind of skimmed upon but we haven't really broke it down so thank you for coming down here i'm excited to jump into it now before we talk about sleep apnea and the connection between oral health and brain health and how the mouth is structured and upper airway respiratory syndrome and all those topics I want you to sort of set the stage to help our listeners understand the type of person that you are. You have a great story that you've shared before about how you got fired 10 months into being a young dentist working at your first uh, practice. Can you tell that story? Right. Well, that's not a story I'm, uh, I'm proud of, but I, I, it was my daughter who actually said, you know, this is a great story, Dad. You need to share this. And it does tell a lot about what I was back then. I did. I got fired from a big clinic that I was working with. It was a great experience. Um, uh, based on the education I had received, I was getting all the root canals and more of the difficult cases, which was kind of nice to, to experience and all that. But a lot of the stuff I was being told to do uh, actually by a non-dentist who was part owner of the clinic, and I was somehow able to refer some of this work out. For example, if you build a bridge, uh, that's a big, you know, a lot of crowns on some teeth, and if the gum disease has not been addressed, then it, that's like remodeling the kitchen, and you've got dry rot on the floor. I mean, it was, it. so I would sneak this patient out, give them my personal card with a name written on the back of a local periodontist, and that worked for eight or nine months. You'd give them other solutions to really deal with what their issue was rather than upselling them or, exactly, right. or getting right. the, the business sort of side involved. Exactly. So, and I was taking more x-rays and I was very careful with my root canals and, and I was saying things to them that, you know, the administration, uh, who obviously was concerned about production, uh, wasn't very happy with, but for eight or nine months I hung in there. My assistants were, uh, were with me on that. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a good time. It was stressful, you know, being a young dentist and, 
anytime a young dentist comes out of school, that's a very stressful time. But I look back to it. I think it is a great story. Uh, if it wasn't for my daughter, I, I probably wouldn't have put it on our website. But well, what's really beautiful about it is that it, it starts to show the early inclinations of wanting to do things right and also differently going against the grain a little bit, even though everybody might be telling you. Right. And that's the foundation of all the work that you do yep. and the resources that you put on your website and the education you bring to people. Um, where do you think that that came from? You know, that's a good question. Um, probably from my upbringing, probably from my dad, who was a physician. Uh, he was a radiologist. Uh, talk about root cause. I mean, they're looking for things, uh, the visual uh, effects of, you know, systemic disease and, and um you know, it's uh, to reiterate that story. Part of that, part of that was my education. Uh, being an idealistic dentist, having gone to a good school, half of that was not what I was thinking. It was what I learned. And being thrust into a more commercial environment, there were there were there were conflicts. You know, there were uh, you know, times where they didn't want me to do what I was trained to do. So that was part of it. But I think it probably came from my dad um, wanting to really do everything for the patient, not just fill a cavity, you know, find out wh where did this cavity come from? What can we do to prevent it? That started early. Because I think a lot of our listeners can agree. There's always that fear that the general public has when it mm -hmm. comes to dentistry is that, is this necessary? Right. Do I have to do it? It's almost like it's very, there's, there's questions and people still have a lot of things that they feel like they're in the dark about right. when it comes to dentistry. Right. And there's also other avenues that are emerging that we talked about in our Broken Brain docuseries. And we've, we've touched upon a little bit in some past interview with some dentists that we have on here where we're really bringing back the importance on oral health. And you said something really beautiful last night at dinner when we were catching up. You were saying that oral health and the early signs of some uh, challenges when it comes to our oral health can catch issues that can become major issues in our health long-term. Tell us about that. Well, um, I mean, there are many different ways to look at that, but I, I'm, first of all, I'm very glad that the oral health is now merging with, you know, medicine and, and the systemic health. I mean, it's always been there, but now it's part of the discussion, which is very, very important. And that's kind of what we're trying to do at askthedentist.com is to educate people about that. Um, dentistry and medicine separated a long time ago in the late 1800s, and that has not been good for our patients uh, because oral health does contribute a lot to overall systemic health. Um, study we talked about last night was this Columbia study, I think it was 2006, 21% savings in the trillions of dollars of healthcare spent if oral conditions are addressed early and prevented, like gum disease. Um, to me, that's something that cannot be overlooked. It, it needs to be addressed, not just for financial reasons, but for the overall health of, of any patient. And one topic, which is going to be the central point of our focus for today's interview, is one of the biggest areas of the oral health and also brain connection and overall body connection, and that's of sleep apnea. So 22 million Americans suffer from sleep apnea, and yet many who have it never get diagnosed. And there is the traditional sleep apnea that a lot of people think of, an overweight, older male often, who has the classic signs of, of being overweight and other challenges that a doctor might recommend that they get a sleep study. And then would we prescribe like a bunch of interventions, including like a CPAP machine. Mm -hmm. But there's this whole other category of sleep apnea that dentists like yourself are really bringing to the forefront. So 
help us understand first with the basics, what is sleep, sleep apnea and what's actually happening in the body when somebody has it? Right. So um, sleep apnea is, came to me directly via, you know, getting a diagnosis for sleep apnea. That was about 10 years ago. And I always try and think back to what I thought of sleep apnea, which was very little, very little recognition of it, to what I know now, because it's hard to know and remember how a lot of people feel about this, including physicians and dentists and other healthcare providers. And that is that it's really not that big of a deal until it becomes a big deal. But it happens much earlier than that. Uh, I think I've told you before that dentists are able to recognize sleep apnea decades before a physician can. Because we're looking at a whole different subset of signs and symptoms. And we can talk about that if you want. You're going, um, in the functional medicine, they call it, you're going upstream. Yeah. And you're seeing certain upstream factors right. that are causing Yes. And it. the further upstream we can go, especially in sleep apnea. And going upstream by decades is a huge deal because... You know, all that liver damage and brain damage, I mean, that starts happening at an early age. Uh, it can even happen, you know, with children, infants. I see, see uh, sleep apnea and other sleep disorder-related breathing issues in infants. And, you know, that affects development. That can affect their brains. It can affect their personality, uh, learning disorders. Uh, it, it, it's a very broad subject. So upstream is important in this regard. So when you talk about upstream issues with sleep apnea. So we talked about the classic case and mostly people would, let's say laymen, would look at sleep apnea and say that somebody might be a candidate or have a risk for it when they are overweight. That's often the, the big one. Right. So when you're going to these upstream factors to look at sleep apnea in a patient, what are the things that you're paying attention to that are part of the way that you look at sleep apnea? Right. So that's a good question. And it, it's mostly in the mouth, or at least from the neck up. Um, of course, I'm looking, I have a list that I check off list that I go through. And, and I do that with every patient, because I assume everyone has the potential for any kind of sleep disorder breathing uh, issue. Um, so as I go through the list, there's the usual stuff on the list that physicians look at, comorbidities of sleep apnea, like high blood pressure, nocturia, going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Uh, there's a host of other things, high blood pressure, heart arrhythmias, uh, insulin resistance, uh, but when it comes to the mouth, um, if you are struggling to gain air at night, there are things that happen in the mouth well before the effects of not being able to breathe at night and having hypoxia and slowly getting brain damage and the heart working harder than it needs to at night. That all has a delayed effect. The good news about the dental uh, ramifications of sleep apnea, the signs and symptoms of someone struggling for air is that we can see them much earlier. Um, there are many. There's uh, gum recession, abfractions, where the side of the tooth is breaking off, calving, I call it, calving of the dentin, sensitivity in those areas to hot and cold, uh, bruxing, sleep bruxism is the term now. That's bruxing at night, grinding, clenching your teeth. It can even be just a clench, not a grinding motion. Uh, TMJ, uh, sore muscles, headaches in the morning. Dry mouth, you were talking dry about. Dry mouth is I a mean, big How one. many people have dry mouth? Well, if you're older, a lot of people have dry mouth. If you're on medications, a lot of people that are taking medications, that's a very common side effect of most pharmaceuticals have dry mouth. But there are a lot of young people that if their mouth is open all night long, they're going to have a dry mouth in the morning, a sticky tongue. It's going to be a little, they're going to be thirsty at night. Uh, so dry mouth is a big one. Um, a scalloped tongue, high malampati scores. Uh, actually, physicians look at that as well. Um, 
there, you know, it's, it's a, it's a combination of so many different things that if it all starts fitting together, then we realize there's an issue. Uh, mouth breathing, of course, is a problem. A tongue tie can cause, uh, an issue with breathing at night, the positioning of the tongue while you sleep, uh, uh, you know, if the patient can't breathe through their nose, you know, that's again, mouth breathing. Uh, that's, that's all signs that something's going on. We also look at facial development. That's what I was referring to from the neck up. I can look at someone's face profile, full, full frontal, and have, have some, make some assumption as to what the size of their airway is, what the size of their sinuses are, whether they're able to breathe or not, lip posture, tapering of the chin. We have all different sorts of classifications of face type, uh, occlusion, uh, that's how the teeth come together, a skeletal relationship of the occlusion. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge list, and the good news is that we can see it earlier than we can, um, you know, diabetes, for example. I, I think for those people listening on the podcast, I think the thing that you're really trying to get across is that sleep apnea, which seems like if anybody has ever known somebody who has sleep apnea in the traditional sense, it sounds, uh, it looks and it sounds like very often aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. They have a hard time breathing. Right. They, it's like, it looks like a very uh, over the top thing. Right. Uh, at whatever age they are that they have it. And you're really talking about a milder form of sleep apnea that is often undiagnosed, underdiagnosed, that's still there. And many people themselves don't even know that they have it, mm -hmm. but they have it and they have all these different things, including some of the things that you had mentioned on this list. Right. And before we talk, talk about those things in detail, let's just come back to sleep apnea a little further. When people have sleep apnea, even if it's not super severe, but it's prominent, mm -hmm. what kind of long-term impact does that have on our health? Right. Um, what you said previous to that was very interesting. There is a threshold for noticing sleep apnea, and that threshold is very low in dentistry. Um, we're able to catch it sooner, and that's a very important point. Um, this disease starts very early, and it's very insidious in that way. So what is sleep apnea? Um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's very gray. Uh, there's no point or threshold where all of a sudden you have sleep apnea. It can start from the time that you're born. Um, it is a, uh, the, uh, the lack of the ability to breathe properly at night to the point where your, your sleep is interrupted. And in a nutshell, when we go into deep sleep, our muscles are paralyzed. When we reach that REM and stage three, stage four sleep, um, uh, there's some exceptions in REM of course, but, uh, the muscles of the airway, uh, become flaccid. I mean, they lose their tone. And if you have an airway that is small to begin with, chances are, that the sides, the walls of the airway will touch and fall together. And of course, that's going to be a, a, a area of resistance for air coming through and exiting. And of course, that's where the snoring comes from. It's a flapping of that tissue. And the more you snore, the more inflamed that tissue becomes. There's edema of the airway muscles. Um, the airway muscles are, uh, have, uh, in women, they're the, uh, they have protective hormones in women. Estrogen and progesterone protect them. That's why they catch up with men. Uh, after uh, menopause, even perimenopause, um, because they, they're low on those hormones. I mean, it, it is a lack of thriving at night. And it, it is something that um, it's curious because, you know, how did we get here? I, obviously, we've been, we look back at our ancestors and we can see from their skeletons and their, and their skulls that they had different airways than we did. 
and they didn't have these issues. And there are a lot of reasons for it, but, but I assume, I, I pretty much think it's very practical from my standpoint in, in my practice to assume that everyone has a sleep disorder breathing. And, um, and it's getting worse. There's this rising mm-hmm. epidemic of sleep apnea and all the different permutations of how it's impacting people, which we're going to talk about a little bit. But let's just chat about what you were sharing for a second, which is why are we heading in this direction where more people who don't know that they have apnea are getting apnea? You hinted at a couple of components. Our jaw structure mm-hmm. is different. Mm-hmm. So why is our jaw structure different now compared to our ancestors? Right. It, it is different. We know it's different. Uh, we have the archaeological record uh, of that. And the question is, is how did we get here? It's uh, there are many theories. They're very solid theories. Uh, it's lack of breastfeeding. It's lack of chewing. It's, it's eating processed foods as at, at the right age when we should be eating something with more texture. It's uh, the uh, increased incidence of tongue ties. That could actually be from us pushing too much B12 before prenatal, before conception. Uh, there's, a, there's a better version of B12 to be taking. Um, those are the midline defects. Um, what else? Um, uh, breastfeeding. Uh, and, it's but just taking difficult. one of those, yep. the, even the processed food alone, even when people eat a very healthy diet, one of the things you were sharing last night at dinner is that the food already is kind of coming pre-digested for mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. It's blended right. as a smoothie. Mm-hmm. It's chopped up in a salad. Right. And we're no longer just sort of taking things and having to use our teeth for what they were designed to do. Right. And when we're not chewing at that level, our formation and our muscles and our bones and our in our face just develop completely differently. Yeah. It's actually the muscles of chewing and swallowing and the oral posture of where we hold our tongue that shapes our lower face. Uh, if the tongue isn't pushing out and up, if we're not chewing properly, if we're not using these muscles, uh, our faces will be different. So whatever allows us to use more of those muscles in the right way will lead to better facial development. That's clear. And on the extreme end, we know that sleep apnea long-term, people exposed to it, they're they're at a much higher risk of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So sleep um, is not the only thing in dentistry that can lead to Alzheimer's, and that's exciting for dentistry now. But right. uh, sleep is probably the biggest, good sleep, deep sleep, is probably the biggest fixer of our brains, the daily damage that we do to our brains. I mean, the brains use a lot of energy. Um, uh, we we uh, We need a lot of cleansing and detoxifying of the brain at night. And that only really happens. The lymphatic system, the glial lymphatic system, these are something that was recently discovered in the brain. And it was first discussed in a TEDx talk, remember that, where uh, the speaker was talking about the brain shrinking and that uh, a famous Greek scientist or philosopher had actually discovered that and had mentioned it. And I thought that was fascinating, but it's confirmed. I mean, the brain at night has a chance, as does the liver, has an opportunity to fix itself and clean itself and take away the waste. And all our organs, all of our metabolic processes create waste. And the question is, is how do we, how do we clean that out? The liver does its job. It does it constantly during the day. But the, the brain only has a chance to do that at night. If you're not getting deep sleep and you're continually being interrupted due to a small airway or a collapsing airway, then that brain is starting off not fresh in the morning and that damage that that lack of waste reduction is is accumulating 
And we said long term that can lead to that can increase your likelihood of Alzheimer's. Yes. And and in the short term, it could be you just wake up feeling not rested, you feel tired, you feel sluggish. Yep. There are instances, this is one I'd love to touch on. There's a whole sort of group of um can you talk about like women uh and and sort of like the nervous system and and the the connection there of like sleep apnea and the nervous system for a lot of uh, young women, especially. Well, um, I mean, there's that one study in Sweden. I think it was uh, 2004, um, where they randomly selected from over 100,000 women, just women across the board, from 20 to 7 years old, 70 years old, and. 50% of them had some form of sleep disorder breathing. Now, of course, if you're overweight and you're older, obese, high BMI, maybe it runs in the family, you would certainly see it there. But to see it in a 20-year-old woman or a 25-year-old woman who's fit and thin and healthy, that was that was a real wake-up call. For women, and I don't want to pick on women, of course, it happens to men as well, but uh, a lot of the mood disorders and, and actually TMJ disorders uh, tend to be more prevalent in women, and a lot of that has to do with sleep. How do I bring in TMJ to neurological and mood disorders? It's because they're all related to the grinding, the clenching, which is trying to keep the airway open. It is a factor in or a sign that that person is struggling to sleep at night. So if you're not fixing your brain at night and if you're grinding at night to keep your airway open, you're going you're gonna to suffer from depression, perhaps mood disorders and TMJ. They seem to be paired together. And you're also not processing oxygen correctly inside the body. Can you talk about the relationship between like oxygen, breathing? I think we'll jump into a couple oh, of these yeah. topics There's here. There's a lot to discuss there. And yeah. nitrous oxide and, and breathing through your nose versus your mouth. Give right. us an overview on that. Right. Wow. Um, it's very exciting. Um, so when, when, we, when my daughter and I wrote the book, uh, we uh, did some research and and in my clinical uh, practice, I noticed that people that can't breathe through their nose, first of all, let me back up. Dentists are great at knowing who mouth breathes and who nose breathes. Tell we, us why. Because when we lay the patient down and start throwing water in their mouth and putting our fingers in their mouth, they can't breathe. Mm. They're the ones who get up and spit a lot at the cuspidor. They're the ones that gag a lot. They have to put their hand up. The ones that can breathe through the nose, they can tolerate having that little pool of water in the back of their throat. Right. And they can breathe past it. So it's very obvious to, to I mean, I always joke with patients, dentistry, dentists probably invented waterboarding, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it's why people don't want to come see us. It is a it is a uh, a panic moment. It is a fight or flight response when your airway's blocked and you can't breathe through your nose. I mean, it's a lot like how we sleep at night if we're not breathing at night. We're going to wake up a little anxious in the morning because we've been fighting for our life at night. If you have 12 interruptions like I did at night before I treated my sleep apnea per hour, that's 12 grizzly bear sightings at night. I mean, that's that will wear out your adrenal glands. Your body doesn't know the difference. I, I just want to touch on that for a second. Yeah. Interrupt your story if that's okay. Is literally at night when you have a version of sleep apnea and there's mm -hmm. a spectrum of how mm -hmm. severe it is, mm -hmm. your body is actually feels that it's at risk of dying yes and it can increase like uh cortisol in the body it can mm -hmm. have a shot of like adrenaline inside the body that basically right. says like something's attacking me i can't sleep properly right and there's like often if you know somebody that has severe sleep apnea who hasn't been treated you'll see these major gasps for mm -hmm. air mm -hmm. in the middle of their night i had a cousin who i recommended go for a sleep study and he came back and in the course of an hour he was stopping to breathe 45 times on average right. 
in an right. hour. So yep. 45 times in an right. hour, And sometimes he's that's to 50, 60 seconds. And some people can't even hold their breath that long. And then, you know, the body will wake you up. It's a, it's a, it's fear of, of, of thriving. I mean, it's a, it's a guttural gut instinct of I'm going to die. And, and, you know, does that come through, uh, you know, if you've been sleeping, absolutely. Uh, that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from. It's not just from the hormonal problems in the brain, not being able to fix itself at night. It's from the anxiety. It's from feeling that way at night. Um, and it, it's, um, it, it can really, I think the, the enjoyment I get in doing what I do is that we can turn that around in a matter of six months. We can see people, we see people and we see, and we, we take a little interview with them. We write down some notes on how they feel in the morning. And then six months after we've treated them, we, uh, we interview them again. And it's remarkable to see the difference. I feel a little happier. I can't close my eyes after I wake up. I feel like getting out of bed. I feel a little bit better about the day. But if you're, if you're fighting for your life at night, you don't have time. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, the glass is half empty. I mean, you're, you're having a tough time. You're, you're challenged the minute you wake up. And that's the exact time of day when you should feel rested, restored, and ready for you know, life in general. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anything more to put that attention on with sleep. It's like, mm -hmm. even if you don't have the perfect diet, like really to put attention in your sleep, right. first of all, there is no perfect diet and we don't believe in that, of course, but I'm just saying I'd rather have somebody just have incredible sleep mm -hmm. than not have their diet 100% tuned in because that's how fundamentally important sleep is. So going back to your story, cause I mm -hmm. interrupted you, you were talking about, you know, dentists are often the first to know yeah. about that about whether or not somebody's good. And you were explaining the mechanism of how oxygen is processed inside the body and, and, what, and what happens exactly when we're breathing through the mouth versus doing what we were designed to do, which is breathing through the nose. So could you continue right. down that path? So it's very interesting. Um, and I didn't know this until about five years ago. Um, and it started with the simple act of mouth taping. Um, people that for example, if I make an oral appliance, which is something that just keeps the chin from falling back when they go to sleep, that keeps the tongue and the airway open. There's CPAP therapy, APAP therapy. That's the little machine that people put on. These are the main solutions for sleep apnea. It keeps positive press pressure in the airway and keeps it from collapsing. Those things work well if the patient is able to breathe through their nose. So that's how I first ran into this. I would make an oral appliance for someone and the results were not quite what I expected. And then I learned, of course, that, well, if they can't breathe through their nose, it's not going to work as well. Same thing for a CPAP. So, so that's how I kind of came across it. Then I did a lot of research, started reading up on it, read these pulmonology books, uh, spoke to a lot of pulmonologists about it and a lot of ear, nose and throat uh, MDs and understood that Things like, for example, um, when you breathe through your mouth only, you're not able to deal with your O2, uh, your CO2-O2 mix in your blood. There's, there's O2, CO2 is a waste product. It's coming out. O2 is what we're breathing in. And we want to get O2, oxygen, to our bloodstream. But if there's too much CO2, or if you are in acidosis, I mean, the analogy I use for patients, if you add carbonic acid to water to make it all bubbly, the pH drops. It becomes very acidic. And we talk about it a lot in dentistry because that's a drink that can dissolve enamel in your mouth. So um, it's the same thing with blood. Too much CO2 acidifies the blood and that actually harms or, or prevents as much oxygen going from the lungs to the blood. So that's a big deal. Breathing through your nose is a better regulator of CO2 
In other words, if you breathe through your nose most of the time, your CO2 levels will be optimal. The important thing in that, I didn't realize this until five years ago, and it really made me think, the body is measuring, is controlling your breathing. It's, a, it's the brainstem that is regulating the subconscious breathing. That, the, that part of the brainstem is looking at CO2 in the blood, not O2. So it's not responding to how much oxygen you have, which you would think that would be the process. It's responding to how much CO2 is in your blood. So that's where we get this panting and short breathing, which makes it worse and we get dizzy. These are all the short-term effects of you know hyperventilation and all that. I mean, I, I the, the old yogis were right. I mean, breathing is so important and we somehow have forgotten to breathe. Maybe it's related to our airways. If you can't breathe through your nose, of course, and, and you have a lot of allergies, uh, due to your environment, I mean, that will turn you into a, a person who can only mouth breathe. And then it's difficult to breathe. So the pH of your blood, as it is anywhere in the body, is key to, uh, you know, keeping your blood pressure low, um, uh, uh, regulating heart rate through breathing, and also just a general feeling of happiness and wellness. And a lot of top athletes, I mean, like when I first heard about mouth taping in the context of, and we're going to talk about what that is, mm-hmm. um, but when I first heard about mouth taping in the context of helping out with sleep apnea or people that were uh, having troubles or certain symptoms come up from not sleeping properly, I thought of sort of the history of a lot of elite athletes mm-hmm. when they work out, they would often have, some of them would have trainers who would say, oh yeah, I tell them to like tape their mouth mm-hmm. when they train right. because that teaches them to breathe. They couldn't explain the science of it all, mm-hmm. but they should know they just got better performance, right. Right. longer endurance from these Mm-hmm. these athletes that were there. So there was a whole history of mouth taping and sort right. of elite athletes and performance. Um, it's the same thing in mountaineering. And this has been around before we know how it works. But uh, when you're climbing at high altitude, uh, you're lacking oxygen. So if you do what's called pressure, uh, pressure breathing and rest step, it's a combination of resting your limbs. So you would pause between each step, lock your leg. But the breathing in between is very important. It's designed to help oxygenate your, it's really venting CO2. It's a pursing of the lips, breathing in air through your nose, pushing it out. But that process alone, if your partial pressures are lower, like at 10, 15, 20,000 feet, uh, you're able to push more oxygen to your blood, which is going to your muscles and which is what you need. Mm. So let's just visualize it for those that are listening Mm -hmm. when you're talking about people mouth breathing so Mm -hmm. imagine you're sleeping at night you're Mm -hmm. literally talking somebody who has their mouth open right and is just breathing through there so Mm -hmm. now let's talk about the sort of solution side of it which is you are somebody who is a big encourager Mm -hmm. of mouth taping Mm -hmm. so tell us exactly what is mouth taping sounds pretty crazy doesn't it yeah um you know uh it is I present it differently now. I would just tell patients, listen, you've got a mouth tape for these reasons. And half of them will take that advice. And the ones that do are typically very pleased. But the other half will, just won't do it. Um, I use it in my practice as a diagnostic tool, firstly. I want to know if the patient can can nose breathe. Can you actually breathe through your nose or yes, right. is it clogged? Or- does, the, does the tape stay on? They text me back in a few days. And if the tape stays on all night long and they're peeling it off in the morning, then I know what I'm dealing with when it comes to you know treating for sleep apnea and, and other other things. So, but in general, the concept of mouth taping, it's, it's a reminder. It's not creating this impermeable seal that, you know, could frighten people and maybe, uh, you know, they would stop breathing at night. It's not about that. It's a reminder. It is a gentle reminder to keep your lips closed. And there are a lot of people out there that can do that on their own. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way it was meant to be. When we go to sleep and we're relaxed, all the air coming through our nose and out of our nose should be enough. And there are a lot of advantages of doing that. Breathing through your mouth, though, a lot of us cannot do that. But a lot of us, because we mouth tape, are, are better at it. And, and, and what I tell people is that you may not be good at it at first. Breathing through your nose. Right. Breathing right. through your nose and mouth taping. But push through it, work on it. And at some point, because you start using your nose again, there's some borderline, there are a lot of borderline cases. I would say most of us are borderline. Uh, then, you know, you're pushing warm air past the nasal sinuses again, the mucosa there. You're building a biome, a nasal biome. Um, you are uh, creating less edema. You're going to get less of a histaminic response when you come across an allergen like pollen, but it takes time. But if we stop using our nose to breathe, well, we're not getting the nitric oxide. We're not a production. We're not getting uh, filtration, humidification of the air. Um, there's a, a, a temperature gradient between breathing air in through the nose as opposed to the mouth for the lungs. And I would think that we would want to keep that, you know, I mean, at a healthy level, right? I mean, you don't want to, and also we dehydrate more often. We can lose up to a liter of water uh, by mouth breathing. So if you're feeling dehydrated, I would look at if your mouth is open a lot. Now, of course, I'm not talking about talking and eating and all that, but but at nighttime, the mouth should be closed and the tape is a great reminder. And you're not talking about packing tape or anything like that. There's actually specific yes, mouth right. tape. No duct tape. Yes. No duct tape. Right, right. So people who get scared when they first heard the idea, right. like, oh my gosh, like, yes. am I going to like die in my sleep? Right. Yes. It's not anything like that. Right. It's strong enough to maintain a closure in the mouth, mm-hmm. but it's weak enough that if you forced it, you could just force it off very easily, even if you were sleeping. It would come off in just in so easily. With just an opening of the mouth, it would come off. So fundamentally, first and foremost, and I think this is just an important thing to say again, is that it's a tool to see, can you breathe the way that we were evolutionary, evolutionarily designed to breathe? Yes. And if you can't, now let's dig in a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. I had a dear friend of mine who... Um, was waking up in the morning with just severe heart palpitations. She would wake up in the morning. She had severe heart palpitations. There was all this anxiety. She would text me in the morning sometimes and say like, I just feel super anxious, everything like that. And it's right around that time, uh, my dear friend, Stephen Lynn sent me a bunch of resources, mm-hmm. including some of your resources and other stuff and said, great, you know, cause we just happened to be talking. He's a past guest on the podcast and he said, you know, you should just really, I overheard you talking about that. We were at a conference together. You should really look into this area. Like, does she breathe at night with her mouth open? I know this sounds crazy because she eats healthy, mm-hmm. she's fit, everything mm-hmm. like that. But this severe anxiety could be that when oxygen is not properly regulated at night and she's mm-hmm. breathing through her mouth, mm-hmm. it basically never lets her nervous system feel like she's fully at rest. Right. So she's in fight or flight the whole night, mm-hmm. wakes up, and immediately feels this sort of extreme anxiety. Have you heard that example from patients oh, in the past? I have many patients that are that way. And they do wake up in a panic, and their blood pressure is elevated, not just from the fight or flight, but from the acidosis from in the bloodstream, from... Um, you know, mouth breathing means you're going to snore more often. I mean, you're pulling in a lot more air past the small airway. If it comes through the nose, it's baffled, it slows down, it's warmed. And as it gets pulled past the airway, less of it's coming through at that one time. And that's less likely to pull it closed. That's the Bernoulli principle, essentially. Um, so there, yes, absolutely. It's, 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 an, 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 and kids is, 
even more phenomenal, ADD, ADHD, uh, uh, cavity rates that are just sky high. Um, and they're the ones that are developing and growing. So breathing through your mouth while your face is developing, uh, that's a big deal because that is what you're set with for life in terms of your facial type. If you don't grow properly here for up to age 10, the, the, the box, I call it the box, the nasal box, the airway box, those all tend to be squashed and, and, and made to be much smaller. So, and remember kids don't develop their sinuses until age four. Can you imagine being mouth breathing all those years and then the sinus comes online, well, it's not going to feel needed. So why develop to its full potential? Because the kid is breathing through uh, their mouths. It's almost like them being in like a wheelchair not using their legs exactly. and their legs develop some level of atrophy and they don't yeah. end up being used. Yes. And that's happening from a breathing standpoint. Right. And if that continues the rest of their life, that can lead mm -hmm. to all sorts of challenges yes. as we were sharing earlier. Yes. Uh, speaking of kids, we have a mutual friend, Mike Mutzel, yes. who was a past guest on this podcast. Great guy, yes. We talked about keto and other things like that. And uh, recently he shared how, you know, you've been a big inspiration by him, by him deciding to mouth tape uh, mm -hmm. their daughter. Yes. Um, and he's been pretty open about that on social media and everything mm -hmm. like that. So I don't think we're sharing any information that he wouldn't want to be shared. But, you know, when a parent is thinking about um, how to support the muscle of breathing mm -hmm. for their child, mm -hmm. what are some of the signs that they should be looking for? Is it as simple as, hey, is my, you know, going to my kid's room at night? Mm -hmm. Are they breathing through their mouth? Or are mm -hmm. they breathing through their nose? Right. That's exactly it. That's the first thing I'll say. You have to kind of sneak into your kid's room when they're asleep and, and find out whether that mouth is open or closed. Most parents know. Uh, it's one of the first things I ask, uh, even before I see the child or the oral cavity. Um, I mean, there are all, all sorts of signs that the child is mouth breathing other than the fact of seeing their mouth open all the time. I mean, you can watch them while they're watching TV or studying. Um, that certainly is, is, is doable. Um, you know, I mean, boogers, lots of snot coming out of the nose. I mean, you know, if they can't breathe through their nose, if they have allergies all the time, that's a dead giveaway. Um, posture is a big thing. Uh, uh, the difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing has an effect on on all these cervical bones and uh, pulling in air, for example, past uh, the, the the nose. I mean, the pituitary gland, the um, the hypothalamus is there. They, those organs can probably see light. Uh, that would affect the circadian rhythm of the child. Uh, is the is the child spinning in bed? I mean, it's it's a lot of it's related to sleep apnea. Are they snoring? Uh, it's this one big multifactorial package that you have to look at, and mouth breathing is part of it, but. The number one way to do that is exactly what you said. you got to sneak in and sit there. So I recommend that parents take their Kindle in there, not their phone because that's blue light, may wake up the kid, and just sit there for 15, 20 minutes. If there's a chair in the room, that's great. If you're leaning up against the back of the bed, you can hear it. You don't even have to see it. And I would do that often. Um, now, obviously, if they have a cold, that's a different story. But when they're not sick and they don't have a cold, make sure your child is, is uh, breathing through their nose at all opportune moments uh, that would not be during exercise, not if they had a cold and eating and talking. And that would be it. Uh, mouth breathing is an emergency state. We mouth breathe because we just need to bring in more air. Our normal state is breathing, exhaling and inhaling through the nose. And when it comes to actually getting mouth tape and let's say with kids keeping down that storyline and we want to implement it and start using with them, mm -hmm. just walk us through that. What type of, are all mouth tapes equal? Do people just right. go on Amazon? Yeah, exactly. You right. know, when they get it, so, how do they begin? And do you have any tips on sort of explaining it to kids? Right. 
um, you know, I don't hesitate telling parents to mouth tape, um, but most parents will hesitate mouth taping their children. There's something called vertical taping where you can just tape in a vertical mode. That way, they, they, you know, the sides of the mouth are open. Um, there's a special tape that I recommend, which I'll mention. Um, but I do have a lot of patients that tape between the ages of like one and a half to age eight or nine. And uh, the story I like to tell is this one kid who started at age two and he had these nightmares. And the mother, maybe about two years later, a year and a half later, the mother said, Johnny, you know, his name is not Johnny. Um, uh, tell him what you told me. And he turned to me and he told me the story. It was, it was not just a comment. It was a long story about his dreams were getting better. And he loves mouth taping and he gets upset when his mom doesn't have it for him. And so I hear a lot of stories like that from improvement of dreams. I'm not sure how that works, but uh, fewer cavities is a big one. Uh, I have a lot of kids that have a high rate of decay. We've identified that they are mouth breathing and we tell the parents, listen, you can spend two to three to four thousand dollars fixing just baby teeth, uh, deciduous teeth, uh, which I hesitate to do because that's a traumatic experience for a child. Typically, uh, it's stressful. Um, or you can just, let's stop this right now. And so there's some diet management, uh, counseling going on, but mouth taping is the big one. That is a big factor in decay. I've seen it firsthand. And, and what's the relationship between cavities and, and breathing? Um, or breathing through your mouth. So, yeah. um, you know, the, the mouth is this, has this incredible biome, just like the gut, right? Yeah. The a bunch of bacteria. Microbiome. Exactly. It's, it's finally come online. I'm very excited to read about it now. And, and it's basically just the headwaters or the first stop on this long train line with many stations and, and a bacteria And the mouth, of course, is a little different than the gut, but you know, there's this sensitive population of bacteria in the mouth. And one of the things that will turn it into a dysbiotic kind of environment which you've heard that term before with the gut, it can happen in the mouth. Uh, there are many ways of doing that. One of the major ways is by, just as in the gut, is by changing the pH. When you mouth breathe and your mouth becomes dry and the saliva is not present, the pH drops. That is easily measurable, measured. We, we've known this for a long time, but what it does in the mouth is it allows the decay rate to increase for a variety of reasons. It's lack of saliva and the buffering of the saliva, but the saliva has phosphorus in it and calcium and and hydroxyapatite. It has all these ingredients that are required to keep the tooth remineralizing faster than it's demineralizing. Teeth are like bones. They just have a shiny outer shell, but they are dynamic. They're always changing. And a few nights of a few weeks of very dry mouth, uh, that equilibrium will switch over to the demineralization side. And then you'll start seeing the decays, the, the decay and the carious lesions forming on the teeth. And no dentist, no parent should ever underestimate what that's going to cost you in terms of just, just talking about cavities, not about airway development uh, or facial development, just that alone. It's great to expand on that story because the, just the traditional story that we all grew up is all cavities is sugar. Mm -hmm. And I can remember even a few friends of mine that are parents are like, listen, my kid doesn't eat any sugar mm -hmm. at all. And they mm -hmm. still have these cavities and being perplexed and where is right. it coming from? Mm -hmm. And so it's great to include this component to see, mm -hmm. is it part of the piece mm -hmm. of the puzzle mm -hmm. that's going that's going on? Yeah, and diet is definitely number two. But I have a lot of patients, a lot of patients that have a really good diet. Uh, parents in my area of where I practice, uh, you know, they're doing paleo and all that, but they still have decay. And mm -hmm. that's because they're breathing through their mouth. Their mouth is bone dry from maybe midnight, one o'clock on. Could also be some missing key nutrients, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about yep. in a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
let's uh, let's continue down that path. So let's say now you've tape the mouth of either yourself, mm-hmm. your spouse. Right, right. I wouldn't recommend that, by the way. Don't ever tape your partner's mouth. It's it's uh, You should tape your own mouth. Yeah, right? you should tape yeah. your own mouth. Right. If they get excited, they want to try it, yep. they can do it on their own. Absolutely. But you can let them, do you ever suggest that couples, you know, notice or check in on each other if they're breathing through their yes, mouth at absolutely. night? And usually sleep, they already know. Yeah, sleep partner reports are very important. Um, and uh, the problem is, is with married couples, you'll get a lot of disagreement. Like, I don't snore, but you snore. And it goes back yeah. and forth. So <laughs> I, I have to, I take that with a, you know, a very. Yeah, work on yourself first. Exactly, right. And then yeah, let yeah, other yeah, people yeah. do whatever right, they right. want to do. That's where we start mentioning the phone apps and sleeping alone in a room for a few nights and getting right. some good data, right? So you've taped your mouth. Now, is that it? You know, is mouth taping now the end all be all of building back that muscle up mm-hmm. or do sometimes people have to look at deeper root issues that are going on that are chronically keeping them from breathing right. through their it's a really good question because i mean that's not it that's not the end of it um for some people it can be but um for example if you have a tongue tie if you um so let's can't... just start right there yep. because a lot of people especially if they're not parents. I don't think they even know what a tongue tongue tie tie is. is, So explain what a tongue tie is. Right. Well, it turns out our little granddaughter of 18 months now had a tongue tie and the hospital snipped it. You know, they do a little quick procedure. It takes all of 30 seconds. And a tongue tie literally is what's, it's a midline defect. It's tissue that is along the midline and it was supposed to, in utero, fall away. It was supposed to necrose away. So it's redundant tissue and the tissue is underneath the tongue and it's like a little, little, it's like a string or like a rope that uh, very thin of cartilage and frenum and it's pulling the tongue down. It pulls the tongue down in a certain position. It can pull it from the back, it can pull it down or it can prevent you from sticking it out and moving it around. Essentially, if it is held in place, there are positions of the tongue, it's called oral posture now, uh, that are that we need to see in deep sleep because if we don't, if we can't let the tongue move forward and spread out and push upwards, then the airway could be blocked because then it's going to go in that direction. So that little tie down is very, very important. And, and there's more awareness of it now, but there there's is. a whole group of generation of people that unless if there wasn't that awareness in the past as mm-hmm. much as there is now, I would say. Yes, that's true. So there's a lot of people that are adults that are walking around with a very strong tongue tie. Yes, I know a lot of them. And you know, the question to them is, and they ask me, should I do it as an adult? And and I, I would say yes for optimal sleeping. If they have a sleep issue, I will refer them out for a tongue tie surgery. And it's a very simple operation. It's it like typically s- is. If it's a posterior tongue tie, it can be a little bit more difficult. It's done with lasers now. Uh, it's it's a, compared to uh, sleep apnea surgeries, uh, it is much easier. It is a 10 to 15, 20 minute uh, procedure. It's outpatient. It's usually done with local anesthesia. So, and there's a healing period, but it's, it's, uh, it's very doable. Because there's traditionally in dentistry and in in medicine, there was this focus on like, oh, does the patient have like a deviated septum? Is it this? Is it that? And there was all these very complicated, Mm -hmm. or is somebody suffering with like a deep sinus issue? But some of that stuff can be influenced heavily by just how we breathe. Yes. And this is a lot simpler of an operation. Obviously, they have to see if, if somebody, they can literally go to the mirror or mm-hmm. s- show somebody else. Probably it's a little hard to see your own. Yes. And Actually, they probably need not. somebody yeah. trained. Yes. I mean, you can go on YouTube, you can go to image views, and you can see lots of great photos on tongue tie. 
And if you have good lighting, like a flashlight, and you look in the mirror, uh, you won't be able to tell to what degree the tongue tie is, what state it's in, but you'll, you'll be able to know. But, you know, why not go see your dentist? He'll be able to diagnose it for you and refer you to the right people. So, the only question is if they're trained, he or she, mm-hmm. in whether or not that's affecting their sleep. Yes. Component. That, yes. They might and say, well, you have a tongue tie, but if you're fine and you're no there, you know, right. it's no big deal. Right. And that's not a good place to go, especially if you have a sleep disorder breathing issue. So you need to find somebody who's trained in yes. this and can dig in deep. Yes. And yeah. We'll talk about resources and how to get there. So that's a tongue tie is, is one component. Yep. Sometimes it's how the jaws shaped. And yes. you mentioned earlier uh, something called a dental device. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about what that is. And when you typically would bring that in for Right, so that's for someone like myself that uh, has a class two classification. That's a slightly retruded chin. And you know where the chin and tongue go, that's where what it goes back onto the airway. And people that have developed that way, um, whether it's through lack of breastfeeding or mouth breathing as a kid, it could also just be uh, crazy orthodontics, improperly done orthodontics. I mean, there are many ways to get there, but it doesn't matter because if that happens, I mean, the, the jawbone itself and the tongue are quite heavy. And when you lie back and recline and the muscles disengage uh, from holding that in place, that's a lot of tissue that can sit on the back of the airway, the nasopharynx. It's literally and, pushing up and closing yeah, exactly. off. Exactly. Or, or it's getting very close to it where close. when that muscle, the back of the nasopharynx, the posterior region of it starts collapsing and the tongue is loose. And if you have a dry mouth, all those tissues back there get become very dry too. And when they're dry, they tend to stick together. If they're moist, right. they get they pull away from each other more likely. So that's another uh, kind of concern with dry mouth. But um, um, I mean, that that is a simple way of doing it. It doesn't work on everyone, but if the if you can, and there's a way to preview this, it's called the Mueller's Maneuver while looking at what mandibular advancement does. It's a little nasal endoscopy unit that goes into the nose. I, I've actually worked with an ENT that that I kind of had to tell him what to do, and, and he was glad to do it. And then I sent him some research and some studies on it, but it was not in his typical uh, specialty training. And he's one of the few guys that can do it. And he can literally, from the top, see the opening of the nasopharynx. And there's the velopharynx, and the pharynx will narrow as it goes down to the, you know, the esophagus and all that. But if that opening is wide, and if you do this to the jaw... Let it and collapse. And those that are listening, you're pushing your jaw back. Exactly right. Um, then if they see the tongue push back into that space, then that patient may be a very good candidate for an oral appliance because the oral appliance simply prevents that from happening. So as you lie down, not only does it prevent it from falling back up against the back of the throat, but it actually progressively over time, we adjust it so we can actually push the jaw out. Uh, now, if you have a tongue tie, if you can't breathe through your nose, I mean, these are all things, all factors in the same that are factored into the equation. But if all that is good, then these devices can help. And for anybody who's listening, who's like mouth taping and dental mm-hmm. devices mm-hmm. and all these things, I mean, when did life get so complicated? Uh-huh. And it's really, if we just zoom out and remind everyone, we are sort of making up for the fact that our facial structure has changed mm-hmm. because our diet, our lifestyle, mm-hmm. how we are brought up um, has changed more in the last, you know, 200, 300 years. Mm-hmm. Cesareans. Cesarean sections. Um, and all the different chemicals and foods that we eat that change the oral microbiome. Mm-hmm. And that has left us in a place where we are not really how we originally designed. Mm-hmm. So even though our body is fundamentally built on the fact that we were designed to breathe through our nose right. as one component, 
we're sort of trying to figure out how to just get our body to do what it was doing naturally. Mm -hmm. So that's where all these tools and devices come in right. because the flip side is if you have severe issues with your sleep, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows we're a huge fan of sleep. We did an entire show with Sean Stevenson just a couple episodes ago. When you don't have proper sleep, it increases your risk of obesity and, and so many other challenges that are there. We talked about Alzheimer's. And so if you're somebody who thinks that your sleep is being affected mm -hmm. or you have these other symptoms that are associated with poor sleep, this is the time to take this topic quite seriously because it could be the answer when you're searching out there for the right supplement or this change or this other thing. It could be as fundamental as fixing sleep. And that's why I argue that we, everyone should get a sleep study, you know, at age five, sooner if you are showing symptoms at age 10, we need a quick, easy alternative to measure our sleep. Even nightly would be nice. And I've worked with different companies on that. But but um, the PSG, which is the gold standard, the polysomnography, that's where you go into a clinic, they wire you up, you sleep in someone else's bed, you have your own room. That's still the gold standard, but we need something besides that because it's not readily available. The insurance companies push back on it. Even uh, primary care physicians push back on it. They're, they're actually incentivized not to you know, do too many diagnostic tests. And this is a good one to push back on. If your patient's thin and healthy and it's not complaining of being tired or tiredness or napping and then, then that person doesn't need the sleep study. So you have a, you have a practice uh, up in the Bay mm -hmm. and you have a lot of patients who you've worked with to sort of help them navigate that. Mm -hmm. So for those listening who are like, you know what, I really do need a sleep study. Any pointers you can give to them to navigating the medical system, mm -hmm. especially if they're not a typical candidate who would be a typical candidate for sleep apnea, overweight, older male. Right. What are some key things that they can bring in besides asking nicely to their doctor right. to get a sleep study to happen. And asking nicely, your physician doesn't always work. So let me tell you my story quickly. Um, uh, I was very healthy, very fit. I mean, I would summit 14, 15,000 foot peaks. I would ski down them. I would mountain bike for six hours straight. Uh, I still do some of that. Um, but um, and so I felt very, very fit. And then one day we dropped my oldest off to college. We were all in the same room. It had been a while in the hotel room, of course. And I literally, my daughters woke me up the next morning and said, Dad, you were just like a freight train. What, what's going on? And that was they my- They couldn't wake you up. Right. Well, they could wake me up, but I was tired and I was snoring. Mm. And um, they couldn't sleep. So it turns out it was actually my wife who was doing most of the snoring. So we both realized at that point in time, and we're both medical professionals, um, uh, who would have thought, right, uh, that there was a problem. And the next morning we're having, you know, our free continental breakfast and which wasn't much, uh, much choice there, but, and this older man, he had overheard us talking about it and he pulled us aside, this older gentleman, no medical background at all. And he said, listen, you got to get a CPAP. You got to get on this right away. And I have to hand it to that guy because we did do that. And we, we did it, but we then discovered how difficult it was. And again, we're seasoned professionals. My wife's an RN. She's in biotech, biomed. I'm a dentist. Uh, we do see, we have good physicians. It became a very difficult process. We felt like we weren't getting the information that we needed to make the right decisions. And, you know, the, the web was there, of course, but there really wasn't a very organized, clean, concise way of dealing with this. And remember, these people, like my wife and I, we're tired. The, these patients are tired. They don't know where to go. And the advice that they were getting was from each singular uh, you know, uh, specialty. The primary care physician would say, you're probably fine. 
maybe you're depressed, maybe you should take a psychotropic drug, uh, you know, um, pull, pull down the blinds, make sure your room is dark, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, if you went to your ENT, uh, I refer a lot to ENTs. A lot of them will say, well, listen, um, you know, the adenoids and the tonsils, leave them in. They'll get better over time. But the patient can't breathe past them. It's narrowing the airway. So there's a lot of pushback. I talked earlier about the cost of it, uh, the insurance companies not liking it, and uh, the incentivized medical doctors that are pushing back on diagnostics, the cost of diagnostics. So, so we navigated this whole system, and that's really the genesis of why I wrote that book. Uh, my daughter said, Dad, you know, you've learned a lot. Let's get that out to to our readers. And, and she was absolutely right. So, so in that book, I, and and in my TEDx talk, I just, I just try and keep it very simple and concise. And I still, to this day, if they haven't read the book, I get people that are very confused. They're being given different information from different specialties, uh, even from other dentists. And, and so it's, it is, it's a difficult system to navigate. I'm not saying it's that way on purpose. It's just, there's so many factors in, diagnosing and treating and then verifying uh, uh, sleep that um, it's you really it would be nice if there was a one-stop shop uh, for that kind of thing and uh, reading the book will help uh, there's stuff on the internet about it um, I would tell people don't get discouraged and you know maybe your dentist has a solution maybe they can steer you through it and a lot of dentists now are being trained in this and they can simplify this um, I'm actually dentists are not allowed to diagnose sleep apnea that is in the realm of medicine and that's fine uh, our part of it is early screening for it, uh, and we're happy to do that, and we're good at it. Um, but when it comes to treatment, we do our oral appliances. That's a, after a prescription's been written by the physician, and that's sometimes in conjunction with a CPAP, APAP. But um, I wouldn't hesitate to ask your dentist. Your dentist may have some answers for you. The thing that I, and I talked about this before, is I'm looking for this quick not quick, but very accurate at home study that costs very little money. Because when I titrate my device, my oral appliance, I need data from that. I need data from every night's sleep and where that best position is for the mandible. And I also need to know for my sleep and for my wife's sleep, I need to verify my ability to sleep properly because the devices are in place. But if you gain weight, as you age, as you get older, if you're a woman, if you have menopause, when you get menopause, all these things will change your sleep. So this is something we need to be checking in at least, I mean, daily, nightly would be nice. And I don't want to sound too obsessive about that, but you know, we have lots of devices that can do that. Uh, but at least yearly, I would definitely check in with your sleep and make sure, ask yourself the question, am I getting deep sleep? And can fit, can individuals just pay out of pocket to go get a sleep study they done? They can. Yes, yeah. that's a that's so a great thing. So if you thing. are getting a little bit of resistance out mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. you can look up yeah. uh, sleep center nearby you, and you can choose to just go down that route. Right. right. Uh, do you know actually, about how much they cost? Well, I do. I have a I set up a relationship for that. Interesting that you brought that up. Uh, for that reason, I, I I work and live in a very affluent area, and and there are a lot of people that you know, don't even want to try to go through the system. They just want the sleep study right away. And that's fine. I have a conduit to a sleep lab that I can actually refer patients to. Um, and the cash price is a thousand dollars as opposed to a PSG, which is, can be 25 to $4,500. Unless you want to have it at the Ritz Carlton, which is available. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that costs, but that's expensive. But ultimately, you know, this is something that as we raise more awareness, because not everybody has those resources, not everybody is in a privileged position to be able to pay out of mm -hmm. pocket to right. go do it. Just raising awareness is important. Mm -hmm. And have you even had patients take your book and suggest if their dentist is open minded, mm -hmm. yes. you know, read it a little bit? Yes. 
and kind of dig into it. Yes. And yeah. that book's been given to a lot of dentists and it's very gratifying to hear. But there's plenty of resources out there for dentists now. And they are they are you know, the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine is my favorite. And that's where I learned most of what I know about sleep apnea. And that's a f- fantastic resource. And, and if somebody's looking for a dentist that can help them with this, can they go on their website? Do they, they have do. like a database? Exactly. They have a database by zip code and a radius and it works quite well. So, uh, you know, I always love stories, you know, there, is there a patient, uh, of yours, uh, who you think about when they started implementing these things and mm-hmm. really focusing on it, just the cascading effects. Is there anybody mm-hmm. that comes to mind, uh, a story, a testimonial that you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, with the listeners here of just what's possible when we really dial in our sleep mm-hmm. by fixing these core, mm-hmm. core things. I have a lot of stories and and to I don't want to sound redundant. I've said it uh, before. Uh, I'll give you a few real quickly. One is the woman who had the strength to leave her husband. It was a domestic abuse issue because she we helped her get her sleep in order. She had an AHI of 39, 39 interruptions per, per hour. And it was about a period of 12 months where she came in and, and we were all in tears, but she finally announced to us that she was able to leave her husband. She was had gained the courage to do it. She was too anxious and too afraid and, and wasn't feeling well. Um, uh, another favorite story I have is this uh, young man who came in as a new patient and jumped in the chair. I was marveling at his perfect bone structure and teeth, no crowding, room for the wisdom teeth uh, or future room for the wisdom teeth great airway, uh, no anxiety at all. Um, after the exam, uh, he ju- ran over to his mother, jumped into her lap, uh, pulled off her sweater and latched on. He was about five years old. He was still on the breast. Mm. It was a patient from a, a African country. And uh, I mean, I had never seen anything like that. I, and I didn't know that it was gonna happen. And then of course I made that correlation. It's like, well, of course, I mean, they yeah, weren't eating, always- a, they had just emigrated and they weren't eating a Western diet. I mean. I mean, Weston Price uh, dis, uh, talked about that in the 1900s, early so, 1900s. So just unpack that one, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who are mm-hmm. not familiar with that, mm-hmm. they, they don't know if you're saying that, is that a good thing or is yeah, it a bad thing? It's a great thing? thing. It's a great thing. I'm not so, sure it was a good thing for mom, but she, right. didn't, she didn't seem to mind. But, uh, <laughs> but, but basically in was, a lot of sort of other societies, mm-hmm. um, kids might breastfeed for a lot a lot longer, mm-hmm. right? They might breastfeed for a lot longer, like four they and five to, years old. Because right? the minute they're off the breast, they're living in, in nutritional poverty. Right. right? And uh, so- It's a great thing because- the, And so because he had breastfed longer, he his bone structure was It was incredible. perfect. Yeah, I didn't even, at, at first it was an anomaly to me. It's like, you know, what is the the tuberosity width, the width between the two upper second molars and the, the horseshoe shape of the arch and, and uh, the room for the tongue. I mean, the tongue, right. when it rested, it just fell away. It was below the plane of occlusion. But, the teeth were pearly white. I mean, it was it was an amazing thing. I, I It really threw me. This was many years ago. Right, was, but, to, it, but to talk about it a little further, it's not that you're advocating people breastfeed mm, to that level. It's I just would, not possible. I would never say that to a woman. Absolutely right? not, no. And I, it's yeah. not possible in modern society, and there's all sorts of like socio aspects right. and other things like that. Well, it could so, have been his diet as well. It could have been the way he was, I mean, living in another country outside of the U.S. I mean, there are other factors. There's other factors. Yes, but but that seems. But like the that breastfeeding is the one that, pres- that made me think, wow, now I get it. It's a different kind of upbringing. Right, it's a different upbringing. That was the kind of a, a, kind of a tipping point, like that. that's, you know, I'm sure he was born vaginally. I mean, the old-fashioned way. Uh, no fluoride in the yes, water. Right. No fluoride in the water. Right. <laughs> Lots of biome everywhere. 
Yeah. Uh, it was it was a formative moment for me. Let's touch on a couple of the topics here um, on just overall dental health, oral health, oral microbiome, because we s- focused on the sleep apnea and the sleep component and mouth taping and some of the root factors that cause it and the problems with it. But um, that's not the only thing out there when it comes to dental health and, mm-hmm. and oral health. What, what are some other big things? When you talk about dentists looking upstream and being able to see things that will come down the road 10, 20 mm-hmm. years down the line, we talked about sleep apnea mm-hmm. and how that could lead to a whole host of things. What are some other components that when you catch them early, you're like, right. if this isn't addressed, mm-hmm. this could be a major issue for the patient right. down the, the road. The big one is gum disease, periodontal disease. And so let's talk about that. When you yeah. talk about gum disease, what's what's the definition Right. So the the mouth is unique in that it has these bony like protrusions coming through this protective barrier. The the mouth is very similar to the gut. It has a stratified layer. It's got a lot of mucus. It's a little thicker, but it is also permeable like the gut is. It is essentially is the beginning of the gut. But since it opens and there's a lot of trauma of, you know, like tortilla chips and sharp things and hard crusty foods and and it the mouth can dry um uh it, it it's it, it needs a slightly tougher kind of nature to it so it's pulling in a lot of air we use it to speak and to smile and it helps with mating and uh, it helps pick up biome as we travel through the vaginal uh you know through our mother's uh birth canal i mean there the mouth is very unique in that way but its most unique aspect is through that barrier, think of in your intestines, if you had a little tooth poking through, that would be very difficult to maintain from being permeable and from allowing bacteria from the outside to get inside. And in fact, it is a very, uh, very vulnerable uh, kind of uh, barrier or it is a barrier. Um, so as the teeth come through this thick layer of mucosa, uh, we need to prevent the bacteria in the mouth from getting inside the body. And it does a pretty good job until certain things happen. And that is essentially what gum disease is. It's a breakdown of that barrier. And the immune system in in that area, it's very attentive, very proactive. Uh, It even becomes more so. And I would classify gum disease actually as an autoimmune disease. Mm. Um, I I really do believe that's where we're going with gum disease. Um, And add that to all the other autoimmune diseases. These are the diseases that seven or ten, seven or six or seven of us out of 10 die of and and live with. So again, if this disease, this disease is very invisible in the beginning, you know, your gums don't necessarily bleed. There's no sign of it. There's no gum recession. Um, Dentists measure pockets by depth in millimeters. uh, And we start that at age five or six, um, and we get good baseline readings in those pockets that they start getting deeper, the collagen is breaking down. The body is attacking itself. Um, it is, uh, like cytokines, uh, they're pro-inflammatory cytokines. They, Mm -hmm. they're released in, in response to an inflammatory insult or actually an invasion of bacteria. And then the inflammation comes and that's how it works with it. But there are some cytokines that actually attack parts of the body that we need, and that's that little collagen uh, layer, those little fibers that keep that girdle of tissue around that protruding tooth and preventing that seal from breaking. And that seal is crucial to when it comes to Alzheimer's. That's the big news recently in a study out of San Francisco and Japan, um, that if those bacteria get through, they can enter the bloodstream and actually pass 
across the blood brain barrier, but it can also enter your spinal fluid. So that now could be a causative uh, agent in Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, and that's something that 60, maybe 70% of us have in this country is gingivitis or different stages of periodontitis. That is an endemic inflammatory disease that a lot of us, the majority of us are getting. And if it contributes in that way to systemic diseases, it can contribute to diabetes, insulin resistance, uh, and other things too as well, um, and sudden death. I mean, bacteremias, heart infections, heart muscle stuff. Um, that's a pretty serious thing. So, um, And mouth breathing, of course, contributes to that. I had to throw that in. Because mouth breathing can accelerate it. It can accelerate it because the biome changes because everything's dry. The pH has dropped, and that's just going to make things worse. I'm not sure which comes first. Again, it's multifactorial, but so gum disease is a big one. And I think it's very important. Uh, take home message for that is make sure you never get gum disease. It's very difficult to solve. It's we, we arrest it essentially. It's tough to go backwards. It's tough to go backwards. It. Yes, it is. And so it's prevention is key. And, you know, are there other factors that make us more likely to have gum disease? Did our ancestors have that? That prevalence of gum disease, there, there are no signs of that. Um, so it is probably diet related. Uh, it could be environmentally related. It could be the chemicals and and uh, the inability to be able to breathe through our nose. And it could even be related to sleep apnea because that sleep apnea can affect the immune system. But it is definitely tied to the oral microbiome and even the gut microbiome. We talked about mouth taping and we've talked a lot about diet and the importance of certain um, foods in the podcast before and you know, what that diet looks like and how to personalize it and what inflammatory foods are that are out there. What, what are some, so those are two big pillars that can contribute to uh, gum disease. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about like some other ones that are out there that not only can contribute to gum disease, but can have other challenges. So let's talk about water and the water that people drink right. from home. Right. Um, and, and, the other products, sort of environmental factors right, and yeah. products that we Toothpaste, use. Toothpaste, mouthwashes. Toothpaste. So let's first start off with water. Okay. Most of the water in this country is treated. Mm -hmm. And then it goes through a whole system of pipes, mm -hmm. some which have not been replaced in years. Right. So they can have lead contamination and other things, heavy Flint, metals. Flint, Michigan is Flint, a Michigan example. Flint, Michigan. And Erin right. Brockovich, who's a mm -hmm. good friend of ours and been part of our Broken Brain docuseries, she says there's, you know, 300 to 400 flints that are happening mm -hmm. around there. Yes. They just haven't been discovered. If, if not more. Yes. If not more. Right. Maybe not at that full severity, but right. are on their way over. Right. So water, let's let's start off with water and the way that it's treated and what you recommend to your patients. Well, so when Catherine was born, my oldest, uh, she's 30 now, so that was 30, 31 years ago. We, uh, One thing I wanted to do is get the fluoride out of my water. And the only thing at that at that time was uh, distillation. Distillation distilling your water. And so we bought a distiller. It was an expensive item. And all our kids were raised on distilled water. I didn't want my kids to ingest fluoride. I actually have type 1 fluorosis. I grew up in San Francisco. There was fluoridated water. And I have little white spots on my teeth, which is the first sign of fluorosis, too much fluoride in the teeth. Um, and just one question yes. for you. When yep. you were doing the distilled water, yes. you were remineralizing it and yeah, I wasn't too worried about that. I mean, it's easy to remineralize, but if I didn't, I mean, you get minerals from other sources. I mean, if you eat a good diet, you're getting tons of minerals. Uh, uh, you can also add trace elements and, trace and minerals. Yeah, exactly right. Yes. So now it's a lot. There's a lot more. Do you recommend reverse osmosis? You reverse know? osmosis seems to work well. Yes. To, to yeah. get out fluoride and other heavy metals and other yes, aspects. Yes. Yeah. I still like uh, distilling water because that's pretty pure. I mean, 
once it evaporates and, and reforms in the container, that's pure rainwater. That's pretty good. Got it. And so that was one thing that you uh, did on that. Let's touch on a touch on a different topic. And you mm-hmm. recommend pretty much for all of your patients mm-hmm. to have filtered water. At yes. Home. Oh, absolutely. That's it's a must. And uh, it's not bottled. In fact, I water. won't go to a friend's house and drink their tap water unless I know how they're filtering. Uh, we have friends that live on Lake Tahoe and they drink the water from the lake. It's untreated. Uh, uh, we drink. We have a place up in Tahoe that gets spring water from an uh, a aquifer, and we see the reports. It's not chlorinated. I still will filter that water. I think you have to be very careful. I mean, with water, water is very important. We drink a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of water in us. We're made up of a lot of uh, H2O, and um, it it better be the as clean as possible. And, and our water supply is very contaminated. I mean, don't don't listen to the government and. Uh, it's it's not a conspiracy, of course. It is the fact that they're overwhelmed. They have to add chlorine, and when you do things on on large scales, there are some compromises. It's that simple. And even if they're testing the water coming out of a treatment plant, they're mm-hmm. not looking at all the implications. Like mm-hmm. this building that we're in right now, that mm-hmm. our office is in in Santa Monica, it was built in 1911. Right. And we used to share an office space with a dear friend of ours uh, next door before we moved into this bigger space. And he kept on saying, you know, my stomach feels weird. Something's going on, that sort of stuff. Finally, some one of our team members asked mm-hmm. him, uh, do you, like, are you drinking the water here? Right, right. He's like, yeah, in the morning I went to fill up because we uh, didn't have the water system installed right, yet. Right. And they were like, dude, this building is so old. old right, You're probably pipes. getting all sorts of yeah, lead, lead and other and, things like right, that. He stopped right, drinking the water from the building right, and right. his gut issues went away. Yeah. So now we have filtered water. And there's yeah. tons of great filters that are out there. The oh, Berkey yeah. system. Yep. AquaTrue, which is right. a water filter we often right. recommend. Zero There's water is good. Zero water. Yes. They're inexpensive. Yes. And they right. don't have to be a major right. thing. Even bottled drink. water. You have to be careful with bottled water. <clears throat> yeah. And the answer is not bottled yeah. water because right. there's microplastics now yes. in it. Oh, yeah. There's uh, xenoestrogens that are mm-hmm. inside of it that can mm-hmm. confuse the body. Right. And also, and BPA free is ridiculous. It's on to BPA the next BPA free yeah. is ridiculous. Right. Yes. That's not the answer. Yeah, and it's bad for the environment. Right. And also, there are things called overfeeds. I think that's the term where. A municipal water supply will add too much fluoride and the mm. warning goes out. But by the time the warning goes out, the kids have had too much fluoride and that gets incorporated into all your uh, calcified tissues, including your teeth. The water is the first and f- fundamental mm-hmm. step. Mm-hmm. Have clean water in your home. Yes. Let's go to, let's go to products that people use. Okay. The first obvious one, let's talk about toothpaste, yep. right? So people grew up, they thought fluoride is great. Mm-hmm. And there's even still mm-hmm. the stance of the American Dental Association is that fluoride's cool. Yes. Right. Just talk right. briefly right. about fluoride. Well, uh, so... Many dentists would disagree with me, although there is a growing concern and there are new studies uh, uh, on, uh, you know, um, what it does to the brain health of your child. If you ingest fluoride, there are two ways of getting fluoride, ingesting the fluoride through water ingestion and that going into the bloodstream and going into teeth that are forming and bones that are forming. And then there's topical application of fluoride. And we have fluoride in toothpaste. It's not at a very strong level. Um, I think it was mostly a marketing ploy that when the fluoride was added to the water and fluoride was the big deal in the 60s, then the toothpaste company said, listen, we've got it in our toothpaste as well. One more reason to buy it. So, But um, I would be very wary of fluoride. I have been, as you just heard, for 30 plus years. And my kids don't have uh, fluorosis and they don't have any cavities. Um, they had a good diet, not a perfect diet. And it's possible. Um, the, the fluoride solution is a kind of a mass kind of approach to large communities that don't have access to a good diet 
or can't afford a good diet. I mean that or that, regular dental care or regular dental care exactly, and or any three of those, and and that's to me is not a good solution. That doesn't address root cause issues, and it misleads us. And over time, for me back then, I have more data now, and I would recommend viewers uh, going to the Fluoride Action Network. Um, that is a great group of PhDs and and physicians that are gathering all the data against the to uh, and suing actually the government on fluoride fluoridation and so far everything's going very well um the lawsuit has jumped a few courts and and is moving upstream so um the fluoride i would be wary and my argument 30 years ago was it was a lesser of two evils if any one of those things that i had heard about that fluoride could do like you know hip fractures and lowering the child's IQ and all that. If any, if any of that was true, I would feel bad because by taking out the fluoride, I was risking only a few cavities. And of course, I was a dentist. I could fix that, but I don't want my kids to have cavities. I wouldn't want any kid to have any cavities. But when you weigh those two things, I think have, risking a few cavities is, is it's something you can sleep with at night. And long-term exposure to fluoride is, you know, can, could have brain health implications. Mm-hmm. We just don't know right now. We do. We do know a lot. Um, I mean, there are a lot of European uh, water supplies that have uh, not gone to fluoridation or have reversed their fluoridation. Um, same same story with chlorine, Chlor- chlorinated water supplies or the bromine that they add now. Um, ozonation seems to be big in Europe and in, 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 in Australia as well. So not everyone's fluoridating the water. And the Americans are big on that. Some other countries are, but there are a lot of countries that are not. And uh, I think the jury is out as to the efficacy of fluoride. And I think the jury on what it can do to you and the risks of too much fluoride or any fluoride ingestion is mounting. You have a great page on Ask the Dentist. I, I shared it actually on my Instagram this morning because uh, I always have friends asking me. Mm-hmm. Um, people always love practical stuff. I know there's a couple companies that you're a fan of when it comes mm-hmm. to toothpaste. Mm-hmm. Instead of going down the route of Colgate and fluoride mm-hmm. and everything like that, mm-hmm. what are some toothpastes that are out there that you do like? Right, well, I mean, <clears throat> Uh, it's our fault. Dentists have been promoting these carpet bombing type of toothpaste with emulsifiers and chemicals and pesticides and soaps and ingredients that have nothing to do with oral health that are, have everything to do with making a big batch Marketing's, of toothpaste and marketing. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so there are plenty of toothpaste out there now. The The choice back when I was a young man, it was it was very few, maybe four or five different types of toothpaste. Now you could probably pick from over 100. And and that's wonderful. Uh, I love um, I love earth paste. Um, I like um, I'm not a big fan of minty flavors, uh, but they have a citrus flavor. Radius. I was using radius toothpaste this morning. Um, and toothpaste isn't that important uh, if you're eating a good diet. I mean, you can use very little of it, and you can skip it sometimes. Um, the brushing and the flossing are probably the most important things. If you have a diet that stains your teeth, you may have to use a toothpaste that's slightly more abrasive. Um, and those alternatives I just mentioned have versions of whitening. Jason's makes a good product. Um, Dr. Bronner's makes a good product. These are all very natural toothpaste, but they're probably being made in smaller batches and that's how they're able to, to make it with safer ingredients. So there are lots of alternatives out there now. Mouthwash. Mouthwash. Nothing to say. Don't like it. Uh, even a bad mouthwash is terrible. Even a good mouthwash is a waste of time. It, it just doesn't do anything. Uh, it's not, it's not active enough. It's like you could rinse with salt water. 
And it would be or would have the same soda. effect. Or baking soda, right? Yeah, and would be better for you and would preserve the oral microbiome. Exactly. But let's look at the reason that people often use mouthwash, which we were talking about last mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. People have issues with bad breath. Yes. What's the root issues of bad breath? The dysbiosis. Um, clearly, it's a dysbiosis, and it could be GI issues as well. But um, it's it's not. Mouthwash can be very harmful. It is more harmful than it does any good. And, and it's not addressing the root issue. Exactly. It's not addressing the root issue. And it's actually masking everything that is wrong in your mouth. And it masks it for 10, 15 minutes. And I have patients that I know of that used to, uh, I think I've gotten to them by now, they used to rinse with uh, uh, Listerine on top of the hour at work. It was it was a, you know, or scope. They used to go in the bathroom. And one guy even had a little, what's that little whiskey flask? And it wasn't whiskey. It was, uh, and he wasn't swallowing it. He wasn't alcoholic. He was swishing that every every hour on top of the hour at work. He he felt that was the best way to get along with his coworkers, and that that is the biggest band aid uh, ever. I mean, mouthwash is a waste of time. Yeah. Don't don't invest in it. It's better not to use anything and work on brushing and flossing and eating well and and working on on your oral microbiome. And to look maybe deeper at some gut dysbiosis, mm-hmm. mouth mouth uh, bad breath could be a sign that there's a candida, mm-hmm. could be all sorts of other gut issues. Yes. You know, think about maybe doing a gut protocol or working with a functional medicine Absolutely. doctor and Absolutely. really getting into your right. gut health if there's yep. some severe issues with That's bad breath. Point. Absolutely. I want to go back to your book and sleep. Yep. And thank you for touching on those. Those are always topics that people ask oh, yeah. about. People always ask, more. what should I be using? Yeah, Absolutely. what should we be using? And, and electric health. toothbrushes are big and whitening. And, and we're happy to talk about let's, all let's, that. Let's, let's touch on that because one other part of gum disease mm-hmm. and oral microbiome is people brush too hard, mm-hmm. right? So let's, mm-hmm. let's come back to that and say, you know, why are people brushing so hard? Mm-hmm. And, and why are you such a big fan of some of the new companies that are out there like electric Mm-hmm. Uh, brushes out there. There's even one that you did some work with a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. I have no problem pr- plugging right. them because they're a great right. company. Yep. But let's talk about brushing hard. I just want to share a little personal anecdote. Um, I've had my personal dentist, Dr. Rosita Rashian, on the podcast mm-hmm. before and just realizing that she was like, oh yeah, you're right-handed. And you like when I first met her, like, oh yeah, you're right-handed and you brush too hard. And I'm like, oh, what? how do you know? She have, you have gum recession on your right One side, side yes. and you just you know, do that sawing motion right, and right. you're brushing too hard and you know, you got to chill. It's the biomechanics of it. And it's very observant of her to notice that because there is a difference between right and left-handed. Right. And she's like, you're going to be at bigger risk of, mm-hmm. of gum recession and mm-hmm. teeth sensitivity. You may need a graft, yeah. tissue graft, right? All sorts of other challenges right, are there. Right. So um, just talk a little bit about brushing too hard. So and- it's how we brush. I mean, if you watch any typical movie and, and an actor is is brushing, you'll see the sawing motion. You'll see that they, you know, on all the TV ads, we've been brainwashed to put all this toothpaste on our toothpaste uh, on, on our toothbrush. The other factor is how often you replace your toothbrush head. Uh, those nylon bristles are polished and end rounded. It's a it's a process that they call end rounding, and they're smooth out of the factory. But after a while, you're taking nylon up against enamel. Enamel's the harder surface. You're wearing down the nylon, and the nylon becomes very abrasive. So uh, you really need to replace your toothbrush, I would say, every month. Every month? Yeah. I mean, you know, the standard seems to be three months now, but for a long time, we weren't discussing anything. It was was when the little blue indicator would go down to a certain point or when your bristles were... You know, angled outwards. Uh, I would just to be on the safe side. Your te- your teeth—that's the last set you're going to get. That's it. And don't overbrush, and don't brush with a very worn toothbrush. And 
there, there are companies now that will send you a toothbrush head yeah. uh, automatically, and that's wonderful. There's one that you were associated with, Quip. Quip. Yeah, great toothbrush. a good toothbrush. solution for a lot of people that are out there? Absolutely. Small, portable. Don't overthink your toothbrush, but be careful in how you brush and how often you replace your heads. That's the key. Yeah, I think their toothbrush is great. I'm not sure about their toothpaste, but you've yeah. given us a bunch of other right. options that yes. are out there yeah. for the exactly. toothpaste right. that's out there. Okay, I want to go back to your book. So inside your book, you have a three-step program for improving sleep and overall health in your in for the eight-hour sleep paradox mm-hmm. and people looking at that. Would love to just cover those three steps because I know we've kind of already covered it in some right. of the things that were yeah. there. But just as a recap, because sleep right. is Absolutely. so important. It is so important. And I wish I had had this knowledge in my journey through treating my sleep apnea. It would have been much easier. But the first the first step, and it's probably the most important step, is to recognize that it could be you. I know a lot of patients that are still telling me they don't have sleep apnea, but I know they do. And um, that's difficult. And typically men, women are our best patients. And they, when a doctor says something to them, they will say, you know what, I'm going to look into that and get tested. It's almost this like weird pride that sometimes people mm-hmm. have when it comes to sleep. Uh-huh. Like, what are you going to tell me about sleep? Like, I don't know how to right. sleep. Exactly right. And you don't right. want to admit Right. That something is off. Right. Right. I've noticed that a few times. Yeah. Well, sleep is innate, but it's not guaranteed. And we all think <laughs> we're good sleepers. And being able to notice, I mean, we, we come from being children and we sleep like babies most of the time. And and then, you know, if our sleep changes a little bit, those changes are so small. Plus, we're not conscious while we're, we're not there to be able to analyze our own sleep. You cannot verify your own sleep. I keep saying that to people. You cannot be the decider of who... Uh, tells you whether, I, I mean, you can't be that person. I sleep well, I don't sleep well. I was that person. I felt I slept well. Obviously, I didn't. I was have, having 12 interruptions per hour. So that is that first step is the the diagnosis part of the of the of the of the three steps. And that is, but before you get a diagnosis, you have to be willing to get the diagnosis. You have to be open to the fact that you may have sleep apnea. Your father may be snoring, your mother may be snoring, they may have high blood pressure or... Or you simply just wake up with a dry mouth. Exactly. Or you're or constantly you're getting up at night. Right, or you're and, napping, or you're getting up at the middle of the night and going to the bathroom. That is a comorbidity of sleep apnea. We're designed to go to sleep and wake up and feel, you know, there are morning people, there are evening people, mm-hmm. but you're designed to wake up in the morning and feel rest, right. rested. It, yeah, exactly. In my case, I was very good at going to bed late. I'd get that second wind. I was a night owl. I could stay up to 1 or 2 a.m., get a lot of work done, get up the next morning at 6 or 7. But I was burning the candle at both ends, and my adrenal glands were picking up all the pieces. And you can only do that for so long. But if I had known earlier that that was happening, I would have gone to bed earlier. I would have solved my airway issue, and I would have do what I do now, and I would just get up without an alarm. The best time to set an alarm is when you go to sleep. Make sure you go to bed at the exact same time every night. Typically, that will solve a lot of problems. Sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene. That's the number one sleep hygiene tip I can give is just set that alarm. Mine's set at 10. Um, My aura ring will remind me as well. Uh, There are a lot of apps that can do that. Um, And and also give in to that tired feeling. But if you're napping, um, my wife was very proud of the fact that she could sleep on trains and planes and she traveled a lot early in her career and and she could sleep in a matter of minutes anywhere uh, at the dentist, getting her hair cut. That is sleep latency, and that is a severe issue. That is nothing to be proud of. It should, one of the, one of the things I, th- there's one thing I didn't like about treating my sleep apnea. It now takes me about 12 minutes to get to sleep, mm-hmm. but that's normal. That is sleep latency. That's how long it takes you to wind down and for you to get into that first stage, that first 5% N1 stage. Um, so it's interesting, because I've always fallen asleep very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have both done mouth taping and not mm -hmm. done mouth taping. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen an extreme difference. Right. My sister's doing it right now too. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you guys even sent her some mouth tape. We did. Thank you so much yes. for that. And uh, she's noticing a big difference Good. for herself. Right. Um, I did have a shift in my dental structure and I started having a lot of TMJ and I was mm -hmm. biting my tongue a lot at sleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the same time, my dentist recommended that I go on Invisalign mm -hmm. to, fix my, to fix my bite that mm -hmm. was showing up because my tongue was kind of pushing out on my right, teeth. Right. And for the first time I would have dry mouth, but it, since I've been on Invisalign, mm -hmm. that's kind of gone away a little right, bit. Right, right. I think it's helped a lot. Well, Invisalign can help in those areas, definitely. Right, it's almost like a mouth guard in a way mm -hmm. for, for that. Um, but I do wake up in the morning rested, but you're saying there could be some sleep issues it's, it's there. It's possible be. because you only know what you know. I mean, right. your baseline, what is your baseline? So um, for me, what's the answer? Should I go do a study? I would do a study. Okay. Absolutely. Everyone needs to get that study. The, 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 we will pick things up on that study. Right. And even if it's a perfect uh, sleep study, then at least you have a baseline because your sleep will degrade over time. It would be nice to know exactly how long your brain is in delta wave sleep for. That's an important thing. That is the most important stage of sleep. And it would be nice to know what that number is. That's an important number. The aura ring and other testers, they, they extrapolate from the data. I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I can use it from day to day to compare one day to another, one night to another. But to know that is, is key. If we know what happens in Delta Wave, you know, the liver, the brain, everything's fixing itself, wellness, uh, happiness, you know, uh, fitness, no cravings for crazy foods during the day, you know, the ghrelin and uh, leptin hormones and all that uh, being affected, all of that. If, if we could just know and have that peace of mind that we are, we are getting deep sleep, then you have really nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. Why not know that? That yeah. number. Yeah. Well, that's a great yeah. recommendation. Right. I want to toss it. We were going through the three mm -hmm. and you kind of talked about the right. first one. Yeah. Before you no. do that, I want to toss in two other things that okay. I've seen that made a huge impact mm -hmm. on my sleep. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about it with uh, Sean Stevenson when he was on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Anybody interested can go listen to that episode. Both of these episodes work harmoniously because we didn't really talk about sleep apnea with mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. and our dental health and everything. Right. And this is really something that you've been a big champion and advocate for. So I want to thank you for your work in thank this you. space. You're really raising a lot of awareness. So uh, temperature has played a huge role. Yes. I, um, I know that when my room isn't cooled down and or when I don't use, uh, why am I blanking on the device that I use? Uh, well, the it's bed a pad. It, bed it? It slips underneath the mattress? It's not or? bed it. No, it's... There's, there's bed jet, right. which I tried for a little bit, but right. I needed something a little bit more cooler. Right. Um, is it, it's not the chili pad, is it? Chili pad. Chili that, that was I think okay. the name was changed to something else. Yes. But yes, the okay. chili pad. Yeah, which is so a I very intriguing product. <clears throat> And uh, it really helps a ton. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have no affiliation with them at all. Yes. But I noticed that if I sleep and the temperature is off, mm -hmm. it significantly disturbs it my is. sleep. Our core body temperature needs to drop a few degrees for us, uh, for uh, half a degree. And men are a little bit different than women, just yes. like big picture. And right. every person is a little bit different. Yes. So sleeping with a, with a chili pad has made a huge difference yeah, for me. Yeah. The other one, which I notice a lot more for, and I've been recommending to my friends is uh, an air filter at night. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who uh, have trouble breathing through their nose, I find that there's this one category of people that they're overall pretty okay, except their just nose is stuffy a lot, but especially at night. Yes. And they could be having off gassing from their bedding. Mm -hmm. They could have other furniture. They moved mm -hmm. into a new house. It Carpets, could be paint, carpet. Dust, right, indoor air is typically so much worse than yes. outdoor air. Right. So 
often I encourage people to open the window if they're in a place yep. or to just get a good HEPA air yep. filter. Yep. Keep it on at night. Keep it on at night. A little white noise doesn't A little hurt. white noise. It's yeah. soothing. And right. for one of my close friends, we just I sent him an air filter. There's a company that sent me a couple of them. It's called Air Doctor. Mm-hmm. Again, no strong affiliation with them, but it's just a cheap air filter that right. works yep. that we've recommended a few times. And that's been a big help for some friends that I know. Here's the problem. When you lie down, if there's inflammation in the sinuses, for example, when we take out a tooth, we tell patients not to lie down that night because when you lie down, all the blood goes to that area. The blood pressure gradient to that wound changes the inflammation and nasal inflammation is such that so that when you lie down, that's, I don't know if you've noticed, you become more congested when you lie down. So in addition to that, the allergens and the things in the air that contribute to the inflammation is just made worse by lying down. Mm. Also, we're, we need to sleep with lighter covers right? or no covers. Have you, I don't know if you've tried that, but try getting used to sleeping without covers. It's difficult it's because tough. we're so used to it. But I guarantee tough. you, you will notice a difference in the quality of your sleep. And are you saying that because of the temperature? Are you saying that because of the, the material that it's made of? The temperature, yeah. Okay. It could be, I mean, down. I, I recently got rid of all my down comforters. We use a, a kind of a bamboo product now in our comforters. And is the down because concerned because of like dust mites yes, and that sort of thing? Yeah, right. Yeah. I was reacting to the to the down. So, But try sleeping without covers. Not an easy thing to do. And, uh, you know, clean your sheets a lot. Boil them. You know, high temperature. The Europeans are good at that. I don't know. Boiling your sheets. I've never heard of this. Well, their washers run at higher temperatures, the water. We just use the hot water tap. And your hot water tap is set at whatever. Uh, Hot enough maybe for a shower. So, But boil your sheets. I get rid of all the... So how are you doing this at home? Well, I I have a German washer and and it it. heats the water and then cooks them. And they smell different. Sheets, I mean, I don't know when you travel to Europe. You just got back, I think. That's something I've always noticed, even from a kid. The sheets smell and feel different in Europe. Unfortunately, I was staying at an Airbnb and they were very generous with the fabric softener and the Febreze. Oh, gosh. And usually I email them or my assistant emails them ahead of time and like, no No fabric softener, no Febreze. Right. Um, no, no, uh, well, I have to pay attention. I'm headed yeah. to Italy in yes. August yeah. with my family. Sheets are good, so I have to sheets are good in sheets. Italy. They are. They're good at boiling their sheets. So we took a little diversion. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the three steps. That are yes. there. The first step is just recognizing that you're a candidate and that this is something to pay attention. To. Right. Yeah. Second, second step is the, the, uh, treatment. And that is a difficult, tedious step for a lot of people. And there are essentially three categories. There's surgery. There's the CPAP, APAP, the, the mask that people can wear and the oral appliance. And when people hear that, they don't like any of those. Most people would prefer the oral appliance because they've heard that's more comfortable and more doable. They can travel with it and it seems easier and there's no stigma associated with it. Because at most your chin is just sticking out a little bit, but you can cover up what's inside your mouth. The CPAP, APAP, most people, I don't know why this exists, but they are deadly afraid of it, especially men. It's, it's It's a, I don't know why, but obviously it's uncomfortable. The problem with the CPAP and APAP is that only 30% stick with it for the first year. Right. And afterwards, there's no follow-up. There's very little follow-up. I see a lot of patients. In fact, the bulk of my sleep practice are patients that have tried the CPAP, have failed using it. They either have sought me out or in by chance, I've said to them, listen, I think you have sleep apnea. Uh, do you want to get treated for that? And they go, no, 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 no. I, I, I know I have sleep apnea. I wore my CPAP, I tried it for a few months or for a year, and I stopped using it. And that was 10 years ago. And there was no follow-up mm-hmm. with this life-threatening condition, right? And so I right away talk them back into the APAP, CPAP. I make a deal with them. I tell them, we'll make the oral appliance. We'll get your airway partially open or fully open by using that device. 
and then the APAP will be that much easier. And also the machines have gotten better. So now this is a, because I've never worn a CPAP. Mm -hmm. I've recommended so many people go get a sleep study. Good. And also one little anecdote is one of my dearest friends had, um, was wanting to make some lifestyle changes mm -hmm. and, and lose some weight as part of that mm -hmm. process. That helps. And he had plateaued for so long. And then finally I said, you know, that sleep study that we had been talking about, go, go get it. You're a doctor and you're like a good candidate. He went and got it just continuing down the clean eating diet that he had already started and using the, the CPAP, uh, those 15 pounds that he couldn't lose, mm -hmm. they came off. I hear that often. Yes. And I see it often. And it actually happened with me. I mean, once I was able to get a, get control of my sleep apnea, I was able to drop sugar completely, uh, go paleo, and I, the cravings are gone. I mean, it really is a hormonal imbalance caused by the sleep apnea that allows, that makes us, you know, crave for these foods that are not good for us because it's instant energy, but it's bad for your teeth. It's bad for your gut microbiome and it's bad for your weight. So one question for you. So when people are put on a, a CPAP machine mm -hmm. that is helping them with their breathing, uh, because I've never used it before, I've mm -hmm. seen photos of them and I know they've gotten a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. Are you in addition to that mouth taping them? It depends. If you're wearing a full face mask, perhaps not, but okay. you do still want to keep the mouth closed. They have chin straps. That was the, the old way of dealing with that. But if you're wearing a nose pillow or a nose, um, you know, if the air is only coming in through the nose, if your mouth opens, that pressure is released, the pressure is lost, and there'll be a noise that will actually wake you up. Right. Uh, so you, mouth taping can be used in conjunction with uh, CPAP and, and um, APAP therapy. Absolutely. So you went down the line of number two, which is all these interventions mm -hmm. and figuring out the right in intervention for you. Mm -hmm. And the, ch you know, the challenge of really working with somebody knowledgeable, because even in the instance of being recommended a CPAP machine or interventions, mm -hmm. there's a lot of lack of follow through or mm -hmm. physicians not checking in with the patient. Right. And so people try it and then they drop it because they didn't mm -hmm. think it didn't work or it's right. too inconvenient for right. them to use. Exactly. Or they can't afford it. That also, I see that happen often. Insurance companies sometimes don't pay for a CPAP, which is amazing to me because they'll pay for, you know, heart surgery, but they won't pay for one of the root causes of needing heart surgery. Mm. That's number two. And often number two is really a commitment to your health because it takes a little bit of investigating and finding the right team. We mm -hmm. often talk about mm -hmm. you got, you're the CEO of your own health. Mm -hmm. You've got to build your team out. So that mm -hmm. could be finding the right dentist. And they have to be communicating with each other. All those team members have to be on board. And it really requires you to be an advocate. Mm -hmm. it's, it takes work. Right. But what's the alternative is often the question. Right. Right. What's the alternative? So that's number two. And you kind of outline it in steps inside the book. Yeah. And I so, talk about surgery and that's controversial and it's it's not a fun subject. But in some cases, surgery is required. And there's also uh, orthognathic surgery where we have to break the jaw. An oral surgeon would do that. And, uh, you know, you can fix the jaw by moving it forwards. And But that's a pretty major surgery. And it right. takes a long time to heal from. And there are complications. Mm. And some of them are not very pleasant. So, but... I would be careful with surgery. There's no reason not to try a CPAP, APAP first and see if you can just do that. And my my advice there would be to find someone who actually cares about fitting that mask to you and trying all the different masks. Uh, the people that are very um, consistent and very uh, persistent and tweak things at home and, and are good at adjusting things and tweaking things, they're the ones that, that make it through that first year and keep wearing it for the rest of your life. Number three. Number three is verifying the sleep ability. 
and that is checking in. Uh, if you have an oral appliance, if you have a CPAP, you're, the journey's not done. I mean, things will change. Uh, you may get allergies. You're, you may gain some weight. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, you're going to get older. That's definitely going to happen. Uh, these things change. Uh, that is verify your ability to sleep. Make sure that you are getting the sleep you need. Do not ever fall into the trap of saying, you know what? The CPAP seems to be working great. The machine tells me I have less than one AHI per hour uh, and I feel good in the morning. Um, you cannot you cannot make that assessment yourself, whether you're being treated or pre-treatment. Never have an opinion about your own sleep. Let someone else do that for you. And that's important. Beautiful. So three-step plan to put attention on arguably the most fundamental thing mm -hmm. that we do on a daily basis besides breathing during the day. Right, yeah. You know, even more fundamental than, I mean, the more that I talk to functional medicine doctors, both at our own clinic, uh, that Dr. I, Dr. Hyman and I have at the mm -hmm. Ultra Wellness Center in Massachusetts, to physicians at the Cleveland Clinic that are part of the Center for Functional Medicine over there, it's just becoming so much more aware of the importance of sleep uh, because of just how bad it's gotten. Right. Which it's is wonderful. Really great. It's actually wonderful. Uh, not that it's gotten bad, but but that we're we seem to be more on top of this. I mean, it's 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 a very salient and very popular topic. Uh, if you go to the internet and listen to podcasts and everything, a lot of people are talking about sleep, and it's it's uh, it's long overdue. Uh, Mark, for anybody who's listening who sort of feels like their sleep is just so messed up, and I'm sure you've talked to so many people who feel that way and they sort of feel a little hopeless, mm -hmm. or it's just been something they've gotten used to their entire life, mm -hmm. um, what do you want to share to that person who's listening? Right well, now? you you just said it. It's you get used to it. You get used to your life that way: being tired, sleeping, nodding off, not feeling great, not feeling very positive, and it takes a lot to get out of that state. And you could change your diet. You could, um, you know, take a pill. You could take a lot of vitamins or a lot of supplements. You could exercise more, but you can't exercise and supplement your way out of this. You have to deal with your sleep. So. You really have to be kind of very, first of all, you have to get out of denial about your sleep. And if there is a sleep problem, you have to be willing and open to thinking, just, I just need that sleep study. I need to get that baseline. And once I have that baseline and I'm fine, then I can move on to the other things. So uh, my advice would be just to be open to it. So if someone tells you you're snoring, if someone tells you that you seem to be yawning a lot and you're tired or you're getting grumpy and all that, um, I would look to sleep. I would go there first and, and, and. Do something about it. Get tested. Um, you know, just buying these little devices that you can wear, the watches and and the the units that you can glue onto your forehead and put on your fingertips, and you can start there. It's as simple as uh, downloading a free app that if you can sleep in a room for a few nights alone in a quiet room and just record yourself. I, I've had I, probably thousands of patients do that, and they come back and they're shocked. Like there was, my wife never told me I was sleeping, uh, snoring. And then they they do that and they're like, oh my God, who was that? Was someone else in the room? It was them. I mean, that's the kind of denial we're dealing with in sleep. I was in that denial for a long time. I felt I never thought sleep was was uh, going to be a problem for me or was a problem, even though I showed all the signs of it. This has been amazing. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about such an important subject. Uh, we have the show notes out to everything that you kind of talked about, including your website, but just Remind people how they can find you. You put out a lot of great content. You, your team, which is your daughter's also part yes, of your team. Right. Amazing. Yep. Shout out to Catherine. Uh, how can people find you and um, go deeper on some of these topics you talked about? Pretty much everything we've talked about today is on askthedentist.com. 
the website askthedentist.com. That's uh, you can find the book there. Uh, it's that's one-stop shop. You can find products that we talked about. There's an affiliate store. Uh, I think that's just the simple way to get in contact with us. And there is an email address there. If you have a question, we try and answer all the questions that come in. That's beautiful. The eight hour sleep paradox, they can find that on your website too. That's a great place to jump in for anybody who really, really wants to take the next step. Highly recommend that book. And Mark, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom with us and sharing your story. If it wasn't for what you went through, you know, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. I'd be in bed still. And for those that are listening at home, if you're going through something, this could be a great turning point to use it as fuel to accelerate everything that you're up to and everything that you want to give love and attention to. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. It was fun. Appreciate it. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.